All right, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 is where we are. We are in the middle of a three-chapter sermon of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we are in the middle of the subject matter of prayer where he is teaching his disciples. This is how you communicate to your Savior, to your God, to your Creator. The beginning of this in chapter 6, verse 5, there's a section that we've already covered. But it's essentially Jesus is saying, this is how not to pray. When you engage God in a conversation... This isn't a stage performance is the idea that he keeps bringing up. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like somebody who paints their face, puts on a mask, and acting like you were somebody else before your creator other than who you really are because he sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he created you, he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And your communication to him ought not to be based upon some religious theatric performance. And in this, he's, the encouragement is don't come to God with your repetitive words. Don't come to him and just say the same thing over and over and over again. Some religious thing that you've learned. This is what you say. This is how you get God's attention. Here's the magic formula of sentences to get God to do what you want him to do. And at the same time, don't come to him with a bunch of empty, rambling paragraphs that are just meaningless, thinking that God is going to pay attention to you because you use all the proper theological terms and you have your whole dissertation that you need to give him in prayer. And once again, he's going to be that genie in the bottle. Jesus's instruction is your father created you. He knows you. He knows what you need. Before you even ask, he knows everything about you and your life. He knows the future. He knows what his plan and purposes is for you. Therefore, this is how you ought to pray. So in this overarching subject matter, we're looking at here is your prayer, which your prayer, this is your petition, your communication to your creator. And as we pressed into this, we're going we're gonna to read through it. But last week we focused on our Father. This is, this is our Father in heaven. But as we pressed into this last week, we were really pressed into his name. This morning, we're going to press into his kingdom. Next week uh, is Christmas Eve. So we're going to press into Genesis chapter 22 and look at his son. As we continue the prayer after that, we'll focus on his forgiveness And then his deliverance, how he frees us from temptation and from the evils of this world. So this is the subject matter of the prayer. But let's read through what Jesus tells us to pray. In this manner, according to this, in this likeness, with the subject matter, you can pray these words uh, repetitiously to the Lord. But in the repetition, they are not to be without the weight and meaning. So as we press into a conversation, he is not just my father, but he is our father. The idea of God being our father, he is our source. He is our origin. He is not an earthly father, but he is our father positionally in the heavens as creator. So if you have a bad idea and a bad example of a father, of a dad, you need to be freed from that idea because our father is not an earthly father. He is our father in the heavens. And in that line, hallowed, holy, sanctified, set apart, dedicated be his name. Last week, if you weren't here, if you haven't listened to it, we pressed into just a major list of the attributes, the character, the nature of God. This is who he's revealed himself to be. And when we approach God, we need to approach him in the fullness of his identity, how he's identified himself, not how another man, another woman, another religion, the culture defines God. But here is who God has declared himself to be in all of his fullness. Not going to rehash that. Otherwise, we're going to be here till his kingdom comes. <laughs> Next verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. We'll press into that this morning. Give us, grant to us this day, today, our daily bread, whether it's our food, the provisions that we need, and forgive us our debts, our moral debts, that which we owe, that's what, that which has become a liability to us towards God. Our sins ultimately is the focus. Forgive us of our debts. And in like manner, Lord, we're going to forgive others of their obligations, their liabilities, their sins toward us, because that is your example. And lead us, don't bring us into temptation, to testing, to trials, but deliver us, rescue us, save us from the evil one. And that is evil personified in the devil. And that is just evil, worthlessness, and wickedness in and of itself. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And there's the subject matter of the prayer. So this morning, we're going to press into the idea of his kingdom, God's kingdom. So the word king shows up 2,953 times in the Bible. The word kingdom shows up 391 times. Important subject matter, yes or no? Yeah. Are you ready? We're going to go through all of them. Very important subject matter through the entire word of God. And we'll get into a general outline here in a second. But first we have to define what a kingdom is. A kingdom is associated with typically a specific area of land, a definable land. It's dealing with a nation, a people, a domain, a region, and that, all that definition is ruled by a sovereign king or queen, defined as a monarchy where a single person is the head of state with the right to rule. And typically, this is an inherited position. So our government is not a monarchy, but if you want to look at an absolute monarchy today, you'd want to study a couple. One of them would be Saudi Arabia. So in its governmental form, the king of Saudi Arabia, he is the absolute monarch of that nation. You'd also want to look at the Vatican. So the pope is not a monarch through uh, inheritance, the Pope is a monarch through election, but in his monarchy, he is still the singular sole monarch. And what that means is that he has that right to rule, the right to sit on a throne, the right to reign in authority, to maintain that government. Um, typically, a kingdom is associated with an ethnically homogenous people and what that means in their ethnicity their language, their culture, their history, their identity is this idea of what a kingdom, this group of people is being ruled over. The king is the source of all laws, has total power over law, land, religion, and military. So when we talk about God, your kingdom come, when we identify what a kingdom is, it is with all of this definition. His kingdom is his laws. He is sovereign. He rules. He maintains. He is the sole source of authority. He is the head of the religion. He is the head of the, the angel armies, he is a, defined as a warrior king many places in the Old Testament. In a kingdom, the king is present uh, wherever the king is found. God is, we talked about this last week, that he is everywhere and every when by his spirit in the church and in the world, and that's going to give us some definitions as we pray into this prayer, as we press into the definition of this prayer for his kingdom to come. For an outline in regards to God as king and his kingdom and other kingdoms in the word of God, you have to start with Genesis 1. 
In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the world. He's the source. He's the origin. He sets it into place. He has full uh, dominion. It's his rules, and his kingdom is defined as everlasting because he is everlasting. And within the creation, we watch sin break this relationship with God as he has created man, male and female in his image and given man dominion of his creation. When that is broken, we watch a distortion of his kingdom all throughout history. So the first word, the first time that kingdom shows up is associated with Nimrod. So in Genesis chapter 10, it talks about the beginning of his kingdom is Babel. Nimrod also went on and founded Assyria. So when you sit in the, the definition of what Babel was and is, Babylon, and even in its, its, uh, its economics, its religion, and its governance, the theme of Babylon carries from Genesis all the way to Revelation, where we watch the destruction of this kingdom in Revelation 17 and 18. And the emphasis is that Nimrod's kingdom of Babel, the beginning of his kingdom, represents to one degree or another all of the kingdoms of the earth including the kingdom of Israel, including the kingdom of the United States of America and every other nation that has existed at any other point in time is a man's kingdom. So that's the beginning is with Nimrod. The idea of a king first shows up in Genesis chapter 14 and the king is identified as Melchizedek. Melchizedek is fascinating because not only is he the king of Salem, he's also a priest of the most high God. So when God calls Abraham out of Ur, out of his culture, out of his house, out of his people to a land where he's going to show them, and there's these kings that get into a war with each other. When Abraham goes and goes to war against those kings to get lots and brings back the people, there's this interaction between Abraham a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and this man Melchizedek, who is defined as the king of peace, the king of Salem, the priest of the most high God. Abraham is submitted to this man Melchizedek. He gives Melchizedek a tithe of the possessions. Melchizedek comes out with wine and with bread, this image of communion. We see Melchizedek in Psalm 110 as, again, that uh, the priesthood that he has is an eternal priesthood outside of the genealogy of the Levitical priesthood, if you know and understand that. And as you get into the argument in Hebrews, Jesus is always better. He is better and greater than the high priest of the Old Testament. He is greater and better than even Melchizedek as the priest of God. But his priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek and all that definition. But again, this, this imagery plays into who Jesus is in fulfilling this image of Melchizedek. When God is bringing his children out of the nation, out of the kingdom of Egypt in Exodus 19, he tells Moses and he tells the people that you will be to me a kingdom of priests. In this relationship with God as he defines those that he has called, those that he has saved, those that he has delivered, those who he dwells in the midst of, that imagery of being a kingdom of priests plays for us in our relationship with God today in the church and for all eternity. We went through First and Second Samuel in... I don't know how long it took us, over a year for sure, before we got into our Matthew study. And the overarching umbrella for that message and those messages was the idea of kingdoms, contrasting God's kingdom with man's kingdoms. But when we watch Israel demand for a king, God gives to them Saul first, and then he gives David because Saul is disobedient and God strips the kingdom from Saul. And then he gives to David what he identifies to David as an eternal forever throne and kingdom. This is what we have to be really cautious in. David's kingship and David's kingdom of Israel 
delivered to him by God is an image. It is not the actual kingdom of God on earth. Y'all have that? So when we go back and we look at David as king, we are looking at a man and a man who has a heart that is for and that is chasing after God. He is a man that God called, a man that God anointed, and a man God gave promises to and used to image to all of creation his kingdom. But you can't say that the kingdom of God is David's kingdom. And we'll get into this definition. Well, let's read through a bunch of verses, and this will help identify that. So in 2 Samuel 7, this is in the Davidic covenant, this, this promise and covenant that God is making with David. He says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest when you're with your fathers, when you die, God says, I'm going to set up your seed, your son after you, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Incredible promise that he gives to David. But as we watch Solomon, David's son, and God establish Solomon's kingdom and Solomon build the temple, the house of God, so that God is dwelling in the midst of his people. We watch Solomon in all of his wisdom and all of his glory and this kingdom that he has inherited from his father. We watch him turn towards idolatry and he doesn't finish well. And in his kingdom, his kingdom, when he dies, it is because of his sin, the kingdom is divided during his son's reign, Rehoboam, between the northern and the southern tribes. And we watch this kingdom, Israel, be dispersed because of their sins. This is why we can't say David's kingdom is this eternal kingdom of God. However, it gives to us an image. It's his kingdom with the lower H. It's not his kingdom with the upper H, which we are walking in today to some degree, and we are watching to be fulfilled in the future. When you follow out this narrative of kingship and kingdom in the nation of Israel, in the word of God, you step into the prophets in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, declares to us, for unto us a child is born. That seed that was promised to David From Isaiah's perspective, this child that is born, this is the child that we are looking to and celebrating in Christmas, our God stepping into the flesh, because here's the declaration, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, these are all titles for the eternal God, not for a man. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Incredible prophecy in Isaiah 9. In Isaiah, this is uh, Isaiah 43, 15. God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent one, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Again, we are looking to God as king, and we are looking for his eternal kingdom. When you flow into the other prophets, you absolutely must sit with Daniel. I can't tell you how many times off the top of my head, the idea of kingdom and the word kingdom, how much it shows up in Daniel's prophecy. But here in Daniel 2 verse 44 says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. In Daniel 4, 3, declaration, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. 
His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. As you continue to flow through not just the historical books of the Old Testament, but the prophetic books, but even the wisdom literature in Psalms, there are multiple Psalms that are identified as the royal Psalms that are speaking about the Messiah, the Christ, the coming King, who God is as King. Many of these Psalms are eschatological, which means that they are dealing with end times subject matter and things. Psalm 145, just briefly, verse 11 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And then when we press into the New Testament, as we're studying the gospel of Matthew, the subject matter of kingdom comes up repetitiously. In fact, the gospel is associated with his kingdom. I'll read a verse in just a minute on that. But our our introduction, our talk, uh, what we are discussing this morning in regards to the New Testament's perspective on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, this is just an introduction. We will continue to repetitiously come back to this theme as Jesus defines his kingdom for us throughout the gospel of Matthew. But in Revelation at the very end, Revelation 11, 15 says the seventh angel sounded. So the last seven trumpets. The seventh angel sounds, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who is the devil, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. As we have been studying the gospel of Matthew in the first couple of chapters, one, Jesus is identified as the seed of the descendant of David as king in the nativity story that we'll press into next week. And here we are in the Christmas season. Uh, That chapter two gave us this contrast between where is he, Jesus, who has been born king of the Jews, according to prophecy, according to scripture, in contrast to the man Herod at that time, who was defined as the king of the Jews who sought to kill the Christ. When we talk about kingdom, John the Baptist, when he was sent to make ready the way of the Lord. So in Matthew chapter 3 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent. Why? Why do I need to change my mind? Why do I need to change my heart and my life? What do I need to turn away from and turn towards? The reason is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message that John was proclaiming to the people. When we see Jesus come and be baptized by John the Baptist, this incredible declaration and visual declaration, vocal declaration that this is uh, the Holy Spirit descending and remaining upon Jesus, the Father's voice coming out of heaven, declaring his pleasure in the Son. Just awesome scene. But after that, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in that temptation, the devil takes Jesus up onto a high place, onto a high mountain, and shows him what? Shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Again, these kingdoms getting their definition from Nimrod's kingdom. Here's all of these nations in the world. I, as Satan, will give them all to you as the son of God, if you will just bow down and worship me. And Jesus quotes to him out of the word of God. But again, the kingdoms in the world that are under the authority of Satan to some degree, to many degrees, in contrast to God's kingdom is coming up in that subject matter. In verse 417, 
Same message that John the Baptist was preaching is the message that Jesus is preaching from that time. Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, turn, change, be transformed, look to me, follow me. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's these multiple uh, statements of uh, conclusion and just uh, summary statements in regards to Jesus's ministry that we'll press into as we continue to go through Matthew. Uh, but in chapter 4, verse 23, says Jesus, this is one of them. Jesus went about all Galilee. He's teaching in their synagogues, but it says he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So again, as Jesus is going from place to place, the gospel, the good news, the message that he is conveying is not just a message of repentance and a message of that need of repentance and turning and changing and deliverance and salvation, but it's also a message that's fully associated with God as king and with his kingdom that he is sovereign over. In... The Beatitudes, the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit, chapter 5, verse 3. And this declaration for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last Beatitude in verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verses 19 and 20, uh, this encouragement from Jesus, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Again, that emphasis. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is preaching this whole message. The theme of God is king and the theme of his kingdom is foundational and it's repetitious. To the point that at the end of this message, whenever we get to it in like five months, If you jump to chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not built people up? Have we not encouraged and admonished and exhorted? Have we not comforted people in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never you knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. One of the scariest verses. In the, not, it's not scary. It's sobering. And why it's sobering is it gets your attention. Just because you say, Jesus, Jesus, just because you say, Lord, Lord, just because you pray doesn't mean you have a relationship with your father that's according to his truth, his kingdom, his will. Many people name the name of Jesus and think and say and do and teach others to do the exact opposite and the exact contrary of what his kingdom is and what his kingdom reveals. All right, all of that was introduction. Turn back to the prayer of Jesus that he's teaching us to pray. Father, we are not independent. We have been brought into the body of Christ. We have been brought into the family of God. We are siblings of one another. He is our father and he is in the heavens. He is high and exalted. His name is awesome. His name ought to keep you in awe and in wonder and in hope of all that he has declared himself to be, right? So one of the questions that comes out of this prayer is, how can I make sure to keep God's name, him, holy, devoted, separate, sanctified, in my mind, in my heart, in my words, in my actions, in my behavior. And one of the dominant ideas is the hot 
pursuit of him as king and the hot pursuit of his kingdom. Jesus is telling us, God, we are, we are looking to you and all that you are, we're asking for your kingdom to come. Now in that idea, there are two different major points. I blend on this. And there are church fights that sit in these different ideas. One of them is we pray for his kingdom to come. The exact sentence gives us the idea that his kingdom has not come yet because we are praying for it to come, for it to arrive. So in many ways, I press into that as the emphasis of Jesus's teaching. When I look at the kingdoms of this world, are they underneath the sovereign authority of God, his rules, his laws, his regulations, yes or no? Some degree, yes, because he is always sovereign. He is always in control. And to another degree, no, because we watch these governments exist create laws, enforce laws that are completely contrary to his character. So this prayer for God's kingdom to come, we are looking and begging for his kingdom to come quickly. We believe that Jesus can return at any moment, now or a thousand years from now. I don't know. I think it's soon. I think that that's what the word of God teaches. I think that that's what the culture preaches to me is Jesus is coming in my lifetime, surely. And if I'm wrong, I'm okay with being wrong. If he wants to delay, he has my permission, not that he's looking for it. But there's this, Lord, I'm praying for your kingdom to come, for that future fulfillment, actual, that you would rule and reign not in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, but all the kingdoms of the world would become yours and your rule, your reign, your laws will be enforced for all eternity. We're told in Revelation 19, when Jesus shows up, that's what happens. And we're told that he's gonna rule and reign on this planet, these nations for a thousand years. Literal thousand years, that's what I think. I got no reason to argue against that. And we're told at the end of that, there's still, even though the humanity is going to be under his reign for a thousand years, at the end of that thousand years, Satan is gonna be released again and allowed to start chattering away and deceiving the nations to the point that his people have been living under the authority of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords for a thousand years, that humanity is going to come gather together in war against him as King. Insane. What does that teach? Man, to me, it just teaches the depth of my own sin and my own rebellion if I am not reigned by my creator. And again, this is one of the things that Revelation communicates. And then there will be a new heaven. Then there will be a new earth. Then there will be a new Jerusalem where those who have faith will abide in his light, his life, his glory forever and ever. And nothing unholy, unclean, undefiled will ever enter the gates of that eternal kingdom. Jesus, may your kingdom come. Now, present tense. Has his kingdom come in your life today? So we sit and there's a, that future kingdom, its definition for us culturally, we could define that as V-Day, victory day. War is over. King is here. He set up shop. When we look at Jesus in coming in the flesh, when we look at his life, when we look at his teachings, when we look at his sacrifice on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, all of that we would define as D-Day. Here's the day that he came and the war started. And in that war, he conquered. He has victory over death. He has victory over the devil. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, death has no authority over you. The devil has no authority over you. His kingdom is ruling and reigning in all of his sovereignty and all of his power, all that he is, all of his ability, all that he is, is dwelling in you today. So has his kingdom come today in your heart and in your life? Yes or no? 
Are you begging for his kingdom to come in our culture? Can you force his kingdom to come in our culture? This is, this is the sad state of church history. Within, when we come to his light and come to his truth, and you realize that you were wrong and that you've repented, that you've turned to him and you're growing in the knowledge of his word and all that that means and all that that defines for you as a follower and for us as we gather together in his name alone, do we not want that for everybody? We want it for everybody. But here's the thing about faith. You can't force anybody. If you put somebody's throat at the end of a spear tip, you put a gun to somebody's head, you put a law on the books, you can't force faith. And when you look at church history, when the church is the head of state, that head of state becomes an abuser of humanity, attempting to force human beings to submit to a God that they do not want to submit to. So you sit in church history when Christianity becomes the state religion of Rome and how that twisted in an unholy marriage between church and state in Rome and how that fed through the Eastern church into Europe, how's that, how that's fed into other Orthodox traditions, how that's fed into even Protestant traditions, the violence that comes out of believers in God as King, in his grace, in his mercy. How has a believer in God as King ever taken a sword and beheaded another human being because they reject our God as king. It ought not to be. Yes or no? You, see, you, can, you can sit in that on your own and filter through that. But look at what church history has done when this, the, the church is head of state. In our nation, we have a separation of church and state. And what that means is that the head of our state, the president, is not the head of the church. And it also means the head of the church is not the head of the government. There is a separation of powers. That is not a separation of culture. Do we have the right and authority to stand up for God's truth and go voice that truth in our culture, in politics, yes or no? Absolutely. Do it in God's power. Do it in his wisdom. Do it in his kindness. Do it in his love. But should you, should we expect a person who does not bend the knee to God as creator and believe him to be the creator, should we believe that they uh, should support the right of a human life in the womb of a woman? Yes or no? We live in a country where the majority rules. Our country has a heavy Christian influence in law and in culture. We are watching that Christian influence dissipate to a great degree where what has defined as good in God's word is often defined as evil in our culture today. And that which is defined as evil in God's word is defined as good in our culture. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for his name's sake. When the culture mocks you and maligns you and tries to limit your voice and limit your influence. That's what our culture is doing today with the voice of his truth in the culture. So should we just hide? No. We go and invest ourselves in those school boards. We go invest ourselves in local government and federal government. We invest ourselves in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our places of work. And just every social sphere there is, we are told that we are bringing with us the king and his kingdom. The caution is to make sure that the thoughts of your heart, the meditation of your mind, 
the words of your mouth and your actions line up with his kingdom and not your identity of what, your ideas of what you think the United States of America ought to look like in subject to his kingdom. Does that make sense? Very often the political language of the day becomes our religious language and that gets really broken. The Bible needs to define our language religiously, politically, in our homes, in our church. We are to go to be salt and life and do that in humility, in love, in grace, standing for the truth, stating the truth, even if somebody's going to say that you're X, Y, Z in the buckets that they want to define you as. We need to trust in the Lord that he is your king. He is the lawgiver. He rules. And we are yearning for everybody to come underneath his kingship, bowing the knee willingly, knowing that there is coming a day when his kingdom comes, there will be perfect justice. There will be the perfect execution of that justice. There will be forced peace, whether people want that peace or not. His peace is coming. Oh boy, where am I? Ah, turn to John 18. John chapter 18, Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he is standing before a king with a little K, a governor, an authority of Rome, Pilate. Verse 33 of John 18, Pilate enters into the praetorium again, calls Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He's being accused, political leaders, religious leaders, authorities of the day. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? With all the definition, Pilate is missing from that. We have a lot more definition than he did. Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to, uh, to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him, gets pressured into that politics to scourge him, leads to Jesus's crucifixion and death. But out of Jesus's mouth, he is the king. He is the king of the Jews. All that weight, all that emphasis, all of those definitions that we have from the Old Testament. But as Jesus is standing before Pilate, saying these kingdoms that you're worried about, Pilate, these kingdoms that the Jews are worried about, that their political ideals have led to them to persecute Jesus so that they could use Rome to get rid of this nuisance out of their political and religious climate. These kingdoms of the world, they're not mine and they have nothing to do with me. Satan has no definition for me. He has no beachhead in my life. He has no, he doesn't identify me at all. He has nothing to do with me. My kingdom is not of this world. But then he says that my kingdom now though, present tense at Jesus's time, that his kingdom is not from here. 
But this whole idea that God's kingdom, that's not from here, it's not sourced from man, it's something that's sourced eternally, his kingdom, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, all of your reign, your sovereignty, your laws, your rules, may it come. And Jesus is identifying that, again, this is, this is why Christianity is so dangerous. And this is why people fight against it. And this is why governments try to clamp down on it. Because as a believer in Jesus Christ and a believer as him as king, that he is your sovereign, that he is your head, that means that you are first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that you're not a citizen of any kingdom of this world. And that is a fearful thing for any king of this world because that means that you can't be controlled by another. That, because that means you have one master. You have one king. We are to pray for our kings. We are to submit to governments. We have all kinds of instructions in the word of God, but where there is a deviation between the will of our king and the will of a government of this world, who do we obey? We stay with the king, regardless of how somebody else is trying to control us because his kingdom is not from here, but his kingdom is coming. And this is how we live out a life and a prayerful life that is devoted to, that is sanctifying, that is keeping God's name holy within our own souls and within our own culture, is remembering his kingdom is coming. If the kingdom of this world, if the United States of America and its politics and its election cycle freaks you out and it freaks all of us out, we all get to complaining, we all get to fighting, we all get bothered by it because we see all this yuck and consequences of the yuck. And we beg for God's kingdom to come. But in his kingdom to come, we are praying for the individual souls of our culture, for the Holy Spirit to chase down those souls and use your children in this culture to be salt and light with your words of truth, with your words of grace, with your words of mercy, with your words of your kingdom. I'm not worried and I am not stressed out who the next president of the United States is because I believe that God is in control. I'm going to engage, I'm going to discuss, but what I do up here is never going to be politics and it's never going to be about who you should vote for and who you shouldn't vote for. All I want you to do is love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why? Because he's king, he's in control. And no matter how bad it gets on the outside and the Bible tells us it's gonna get bad. Do we have to freak out? No, you can still have his peace. You can still have his comfort. You can still be agitated and take those prayers into him in agitation and just remember, God, you're king and you have a kingdom and your kingdom come. And if your kingdom comes, Lord, if it's today, spiritually, reality in people's lives, then I know your will, your intentions, your purposes, your plans your laws, your reign, it's going to not be done as in a work. The language is it's going to become, it will exist. This is, what's, this is what is so awesome about being free in Jesus Christ. His will shall become in your life. You don't have to stress you don't have to turn yourself into a pretzel. You don't have to freak out. There's a lot of things that freak us out because we don't know what the next thing is. I, I use this uh, picture for me. There's many times in life where you feel like you are in a boat and you are in fog. You can't see. You have no sail, no oar, no motor. You don't know where the land is. You don't know what's coming at all. You can't see anything. Do you freak out? Or do you just have simple faith and trust in the Lord? Your will be done. Whether I live, whether I die, 
whether I define my life as good or whether I define the circumstances really bad, Lord, your kingdom come into my soul. You are reigning over my mind and my heart. John, come on up. You, Lord, we want your will to be performed singularly on this earth, in my soul right now, in our congregation, Lord, and all the, the plans and all of our behaviors interacting with you and interacting with each other, Lord, we want your will performed. Who's here? Who's not here? If it's small, if it's big, Lord, all those, that's all on you. Your will be done in my marriage, in my home, in my children's life, in my relationship with them in our life together as brothers and sisters, in our neighborhoods, in our places of business, in every social bubble that we encounter. We trust that your will is being performed, Lord, because we're seeking you. And we know that you're sovereign. We know that you're in control. And we're along with you on this glorious ride, step-by-step, as you illuminate yourself to our souls. Lord, we beg for your kingdom to come into our culture. There are so many subjects from whether it's abortion or human sexuality, from economics to immigration, things that impact us as a society, Lord. There's so many things that our hearts just... We sorrow over, we mourn over. We want nothing more than for every human soul. We want them to know you as creator. We want them to willfully bend the knee to you, Lord, as king, as master, as savior, all that you are. Through the power of your spirit, Lord, within us, we believe and we know Send us into our context with the gospel of your kingdom, knowing that it's the power of God unto salvation for anyone and everyone who believes. We know that your will is performed in heaven, and we long for your will to be performed on this earth, in us and in all, Lord, in like manner. Lord, we declare to you that the kingdom, singular, is yours. The power, not only the authority, but all ability, Lord. The power is yours. And the glory, all opinion, all praise, all honor, all hope, it's all yours. You are awesome. And we love you with all that we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.